Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Leonard Greenspoon, in his Jewish Bible Translations, Personalities, Passions, Politics, Progress, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2020, is the first to examine thoroughly Jewish Bible translations from the 3rd century BCE to our day today. It is an overdue corrective of an important story that has been regularly omitted or downgraded in other histories of Bible translation. Examining a wide range of translations over 24 centuries, uh, Greenspoon delves into the historical, cultural, linguistic, and religious contexts of versions of in 11 languages, versions of the Bible in 11 languages, Arabic, Aramaic, English, French, German, Greek, Hungarian, Italian, Russian, Spanish, and Yiddish. He profiles many Jewish translators, among them Buber, Hirsch, Kaplan, Lisser, Lizato, Luzato, Mendelssohn, Arlinsky, and Sajagon, framing their aspirations within the Jewish and larger milieus in which they worked. Jewish Bible translations enables readers to make their own informed evaluations of individual translations and to holistically assess Bible translation within Judaism. Leonard Greenspoon is the Philip M. and Ethel Klutznik Chair in Jewish Civilization and a professor of theology and of classical and Near Eastern studies at Creighton University. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Leonard. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? I'm happy to do so. Um, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, My pulpit rabbi, when I grew up, was Jacob Milgram, who then, of course, became one of the great uh, biblical scholars, especially of priestly material, and taught for decades in Berkeley. Because he was my first rabbi, and he was my rabbi until I was 13 or 14 or 15, I guess I figured all rabbis were scholars like him, and all <laughs> sermons were these incredible um, expositions of the biblical text. Uh, alas, that wasn't to be true, but it was, a, it, was a very good, it was a very good environment to start with. Um, I was actually, well, try to do the short version, from the age of 12 until... The second half of my senior year uh, as an undergraduate, all I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. We have a lot of lawyers in our family, not surprisingly. And, uh, but when I started um, university, my university, uh, I was then majoring in political science. That seemed to be the thing to do. And uh, at the same time, try to make this story fairly short. I was, I was <laughs> pledging, a, I was pledging a, it happened to be a Jewish fraternity even though I went to a Southern Baptist institution, we had a great Jewish fraternity. And um, 
we would have parties every Friday night and every Saturday night. And political science classes were taught. We actually met on Saturday. We were taught on Saturday morning. So my objection wasn't, oh, I wouldn't go to class on Saturday morning for religious reasons, but I was up most of the night taking care of fraternity matters. So I said, (laughs) this is probably not for me. So I had studied um, French and Latin in high school, and I found at my university this really open, welcoming, uh, and friendly, and erudite, all that mixed up in one uh, department of classics. So... I majored in in Latin and Greek, and so I'm still going to law school with that, of course. I got to my senior year, and professors, uh, no matter what we may say, uh, obviously most of our students are not going to be specializing in what our field is. Our our school is very strong. Creighton is very strong, for example, in pre-med. But every once in a while, a student comes along and sort of say, well, he's sort of like a mini me. And they saw this in me and they said, you've got to go to graduate school. And I said, "Okay, I'll go to graduate school or I'll go to law school. And I applied to both. And uh, I I was accepted at good schools in in both fields. Uh, And I actually decided to go to graduate school. My wife thinks when I say this, it makes me seem superficial. But nonetheless, I, I looked at lawyers that were talking about the 60s. They always dressed in a suit, minimally, a sports jacket. And professors, come on, male professors, we dress like we want to. And I said, I don't want to have to get dressed in a tie and coat every day. So I'll, I'll go to, and, and my sister and I were both first generation. So I, you know, so I finished undergraduate school and then ultimately, there's a year in Rome. There's uh, uh, two years of teaching elementary school. There's a start in underwater archaeology. But eventually, I ended up at Harvard, and I was in classics. And uh, then I heard about this department, Near Eastern Languages. Oh, this seems sort of interesting. I mean, seriously, I, I knew one of one person in the department, uh, G. Ernest Wright, who in our day was uh, not only a great biblical archaeologist, but was also a well-known Protestant theologian. We had read his books in, in uh, school. I had never heard of Frank Moore Cross, because he was the, the real star of the department. But we we got to know each other, and that's the field I was. That's what I decided to you know to go into. And the first semester, I guess, I was in a um, a seminar led by Jonas Wright on uh, the Book of Joshua. And somehow or another, we were talking one day, and I mentioned my interest in classics. I studied, you know, Latin and Greek. And he said, oh, you've got to tell you about Max Margolis and Dropsy and Harry Olinsky. And uh, these are all important names if you're studying. Well, both Max Margolis and Harry Olinsky, uh, who spanned the 20th century, are important for many reasons. But that just got me interested in it. And so I worked on my uh, a dissertation on the Greek text of the of the book of Joshua and um and that was and so the Septuagint really was a key uh I I can't say that I had ever heard of the Septuagint until sometime in my junior or senior year of college but that was such an ideal link between my interest in in Judaism uh as a practice and as a a, a field of study and the classics uh so Starting with the Septuagint, um, it 
it, in a way, it just sort of spun out from there. And um, one other element that I might mention very quickly, uh, 1992, 1993, uh, I was a visiting professor at Oxford. Um, and um, I found out that there were a lot, uh, more than a dozen Anglo-Jewish translations of the Bible produced by uh British, whether they were native-born or, or um, immigrant Jews, throughout the 19th century in England. And uh, frankly, I hadn't heard of any of them, and I wasn't sure anybody else had. But being at Oxford and having the Bodleian and having all of the collections, uh, it was just amazing. I just sort of dove into that. Uh, and then I realized that, okay, this is something I I really enjoy. I mean, I really enjoy research. This is something I really enjoy researching. And it's also something which is sidelined, as it were. I mean, uh, within within Judaism, with both in the academic community and among the general populace, uh, Bible translations don't get their due. So I said, that's something for me to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> well, that that's terrific. And we're going to talk more about the Septuagint in a little while. But um, to step back uh, just a drop, um, so your book is about the history of Jewish Bible translations. Why is it so important for readers of the Hebrew Bible to know about the history of its translation? So um, I, I guess I could divide that into two parts. I mean, so w- one is... Um, there's a relatively small percentage of Jews uh, who can read the Hebrew Bible um, with any fluency or, or with any facility in, in the Hebrew. But even when you're able to do that, um, the translations help because translation by its nature is interpretation. And um, no matter whether the translation is considered on the freer side or on the literal side, um, it, it opens up, it opens up a variety of possibilities that you as a reader on your own, even looking at the Hebrew and even looking at the traditional uh, commentaries in Hebrew or Aramaic uh, would, would not be open to. So it's, it's, um, so it, it is a case now, and this is not the result of, uh, you know, a, a focused study, but it seems as if translations of the Bible are found in all synagogues, including Chabad houses. Now, I mean, they, they, they've become ultra orthodox. Yes, yes, and 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 uh, where the assumption is, and probably more or less correct, that most people can read the Hebrew Bible with some getting something out of it. Nonetheless, the translations are are, are valuable. Right, right. So it helps. People are benefiting from the translations. And so it's important to have a sense of just what that history uh, uh, of those translations is. Where do these translations come from? Um, so I, I hear that. Um, is there something particular about Jewish Bible translations that so many scholars up till now have missed? Uh, yes. And what's what's been... It, it, this is interesting that this is what uh, when I say what I think has been missed, uh, I should just simply 
look back for a second and say that the kind of education that I and my colleagues, uh, including John Levinson and Borg Halpin and Richard Freeman, a lot of people were at Harvard at the same time I was. It was great. The kind of education we had was philology, was philological. We studied the text. We took the text apart. We compared the text with uh, cognate languages. Uh, we we didn't ever talk about uh, how a a, a biblical passage might be applied or misapplied in the world today. That was theology, and and we didn't do that. We didn't look at translations. That was either that was reception history, or that was way out of what we did. N- nonetheless, what really interests me uh, uh, as much as the translation as a document as a text were the translators themselves. And um, so when we when we look at who translated the Bible, some of these names will be familiar. Um, I mean, of course, in some cases, as with the Targums and the Septuagint, we don't know the names of the people or the specific uh, circumstances. But when we get to a, a, like Saja Gaon, it, it is obviously a, a pretty famous name, uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch, uh, and, and others that, um, that the the translators worked within their communities. And uh, what I thought was most interesting is to see that the translators had a series of goals in mind, uh, not all of which were simply, okay, here's the Hebrew text. Uh, the Jews in my community speak um, uh, Hungarian. They don't understand Hebrew. Um and the only translations are done by Catholics or Lutherans, we need a Jewish translation. Clearly, that's an important factor, but there was so much else going on with the translations and with the translators that if I, I, I do not want to rename the book, and I would like to take credit for the alliteration that in the subtitle, but actually my editor, JPS, came up with that. But I probably would call it Jewish Bible Translators, um, because I think the distinctive feature that I hope to have added to all of this is to try to understand each translator as an individual or as a member of a committee within the context in which they lived, and um, which then meant that uh, I needed, I would say I needed to go back and re-educate myself on Jewish history but I have to go out and educate myself on Jewish uh, history of, of any one of a number of different societies that I chose. And then the, the, the translation becomes important as a, uh, a representation of j- different Jewish societies from, I mean, going back to Greek, Greek-speaking times up to, up to today. Right, right. And... Um... Uh, I, I know that you're very interested in understanding and thinking about the the role and the place of translation uh, within the Jewish context and uh, can, you know, thinking about in relationship to the place of translation in other relig- you know, uh, religious contexts. So I'm curious if you could speak briefly about the difference between uh, the status of translation within the Jewish faith compared to within the Christian faith. Is there a, a really uh, significant difference in the status of translation 
between of, of sacred texts within those two faith communities? Yes, a, a great question, and uh, definitely is. Um, so Christianity, or the spreading of the message about Jesus, begins in translation. After all, Jesus spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. We have n- perhaps three words of his preserved, uh, but primarily all of his words are preserved in Greek. Um, th- therefore, translation is part and parcel to Christianity. And um, so far as I know, outside of some of the Eastern Orthodox churches, for example, some Greek Orthodox churches with which I'm familiar, uh, there's no effort made on the part of, uh, of Christian leaders to educate the, the general membership of their churches in any of the ancient languages. And, and I've, I've, what I'm going to say next, it's, it's meant to be neutral or descriptive, but I've certainly seen and heard uh, Christian preachers, ministers, priests uh, hold up a translation of the Bible. Uh, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, but hold up a translation and say, this is the word of God. This is what Jesus said. And then they'll quote the text and, uh, in English. And um, I do not know of, and frankly, I would prefer not to know of any rabbi, no matter how non-traditional, uh, who, who, would do, who would do that. Um, every rabbi with whom I'm familiar, or every uh, educational, every, every rabbinical education system with which I'm familiar, bases itself on knowledge of Hebrew. Now, you can, you can believe whatever you want to about the Bible, uh, but when a, when a, within a Jewish context, uh, and you're talking about, in this case, of course, the Hebrew Bible, you are going to uh, either quote directly or refer to the Hebrew. Now, this then leads to um, an observation that seems sort of counter to all of my enterprise, and that is that in Christianity, uh, translation is more central than in Judaism. And in fact, uh, that's the case. Uh, I say this not disrespectfully, uh, not even critically, but again, uh, it's my sense uh, that within Christianity, you talk about someone's talking about the Bible, someone knowledgeably is talking about the Bible, and they hold up a translation, and that's the Bible. Uh, And um, therefore, Bible translation feels as if it has been, because it has been more central to the extent that for Christians, the translation becomes the Bible. Uh, So I would say in that sense, the translation supplants the Bible for all intents and purposes. Uh, And I have heard now uh, that um, study of biblical languages is now, um, it's no longer obligatory in a number of um, uh, divinity schools for all kinds of programs where I would have thought, yes, it would be thought of essential. So uh, outside of actually, it's interesting, outside of the the Tafsir, the translation made by Thajagaon, who was no slouch, by the way, uh, he actually intended his translation from all the evidence I've looked at to supplant the original. That was going to be the translation, uh, regardless of the fact, of course, it was, it was in Arabic. But 
with that exception, every Jewish translation of the Bible is meant to supplement but not supplant the original. Uh, now, does that then mean, well, if that's the case, why bother to study them? Well, I, th- I think I've said before, they're, they're in and of themselves important uh, artifacts for studying the culture uh, and the, the religious beliefs, the historical development of, of Jewish societies. And um, so, um, so I, I, I would say uh, Bible translation uh, in Christianity it's 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 integral. It's part. It's been there, part and parcel. It continues to be. Uh, it's been in Bible translations have been in Judaism, as you uh, very nicely pointed out in the beginning, uh, for at least twenty four hundred years. A lot of that time, if you look at some of the translations, um, for example, some of the some of, particularly some of the Yiddish translations, but not only the Yiddish translations. Uh, on the cover or in the preface, this is a translation for women and children for use in the home and the school. I won't say God forbid we we need we men need it, but um, so there's been that mystique, if you were. But in fact, um, as you correctly pointed out, even in ultra orthodox, English speaking synagogues. Presumably, there they're using the art scroll or perhaps Arya Kaplan's translation. Um, so, yes, there's the difference. Uh, and um, so uh, I'm acknowledging the difference and embracing the difference, but then trying to push Bible translation appreciation for and study of out of the peripheries more into the mainstream. Right. Well, that's a great answer. Um, uh, just. <laughs> To touch on one thing that you already mentioned, you mentioned about uh, that there's kind of more literal translations versus more free translations. And at the same time, you mentioned in your book that um, you mentioned you caution people uh, um, not to take these two these two categories too literally if you will that that they're not that they're, they're they're imperfect categories so what's wrong or incomplete about these two concepts of a literal versus a free translation of the bible oh what a what a another great question um in and of itself i would guess there's nothing nothing wrong with the terms free and literal even though if you allow me in a minute i'll mention the terminology we prefer now uh but when they're seen in opposition to each other, um, that seems to me less fruitful than seeing a continuum. At one end would be the literal translation, and the most literal translation uh, would be an interlinear translation, where uh, let's say we want to translate the Hebrew Bible into English, and we want to follow the word order of the Hebrew, and every aspect of the Hebrew, it's incomprehensible uh, in and of itself. Uh, so you've got the free, and at the other end of this continuum, you've got the freer translations, uh, which seems to me end up in a paraphrase. Uh, and there's look, there's some biblical paraphrases I think are useful for certain purposes, uh, but you've lost then the sense of the uh, of the original. So just briefly, the terms that we now use 
which come actually out of the American Bible Society and Protestant Bible translating, but they've been adopted widely at the, what they call a free translation, a functional equivalence, and a literal translation, a formal equivalence. So basically, if, uh, if, if you follow a formal equivalence approach, which is the main line of uh, Bible translation in English, for example, from before the King James up until the last 20 or 30 years, what you what you you're asking yourself, okay, oh no, you're asserting, I would say, when they ask yourself, the the meaning is inextricably bound up with the form. Uh, so English and Hebrew, English of today and Hebrew of, of three thousand years ago. You know, the different language groups coming out of different cultures. Uh, the form of Hebrew, I'm sure. All, almost all everybody who's listening to this will know the form of the Hebrew, the, the vocabulary of the Hebrew, the syntax of the Hebrew, and English are very different. Um, so, if you feel that that trying to maintain some connection, even if it's not going to be a one-on-one uh, approach, it's very important. Then, for example, uh, you would do what Robert Alter does in his translation. Um, which is every time the Hebrew conjunction vav appears, he translates and. Um, I mean, it might vary at some because vav can, I mean, wow, it can mean but or it can mean and, but every conjunction that's in the um, Hebrew is in his English. Along with that, uh, biblical Hebrew is very much. Um, um, a language uh, that um, I think called paratactical. So a typical uh, verse of Hebrew would be something like, and Moses came and he saw the bush and it was burning and he heard the voice and, 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 and. Uh, and again, a very literal translation. And this is part of what Alter does. Um, maintains all of that. Uh, it's not the way we speak today. Uh, we we tend to use um, you know we tend to, to use phrases like when Moses came and he saw you know we vary it uh, the the person who is in concerned with literal it's not just word for word but it's it's the entire look of the of the verse uh, believes that jettisoning jettisoning the um, the form you can't always replicate it, but you try to replicate it because jettisoning means that you've lost a lot of the meaning. The result of a of a literal or formal equivalence is, especially in the case, let's say, of biblical Hebrew and modern English, the text looks foreign to us. Be, you know, it's in English, but that's not our English. It requires us as readers to make an effort to understand it, which makes sense since the Hebrew Bible is not. Uh, you know, it, it, it may be uh, 19th century, 21st century, but it's 21st century BCE. Not <laughs> joking there because it doesn't go back that far. All right. The, the, free, the freer or free translation translator asked this question. What do I think the author intended to say to the audience he or she was addressing? What function did the text 
uh, play, uh, what role did it play in, in its original? How do we say that in our language? And uh, hence, it becomes less and less a matter of trying to replicate the, um, the precise language and the precise structure. Uh, now, I will admit that uh, I, uh, especially uh, as a, a, a snotty graduate student, that was a long time ago, I always <laughs> felt like, okay, uh, free translations um, have, have no use. It, it's like a dummy down English, you, you've got to struggle through, to the extent that you need a translation, you need to struggle through something uh, be, and recognize the text is foreign to us and, and work through it. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's a lot of use for that. But I've also come to uh, accept the fact uh, and embrace the fact, I hope, that uh, freer translations have their, have their, um, their, their value as well. And there are some there are some passages in in in, in some of the um, freer translations. Uh, biblical they ain't, but wonderful they are. <laughs> uh, I, I I hear you. I think I think that's great. And I see if I if I may, I see a lot of um, um, growth. On your part, from your you. <laughs> older position to, to your more more recent one. Okay, so so that that was all great to kind of set the stage here and uh, to try to get down to to some uh, uh, nuts and bolts of some of the history of uh, some of these uh, Bible translations. Um, to begin with, what was the first translation of the Hebrew Bible? Uh, I'll go with. <laughs> Um, the Septuagint, that is the translation from uh, Hebrew into Greek, uh, which contains all of the books of our Hebrew Bible, other books that were written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but not accepted by the rabbis as part of the Hebrew Bible. And it also has some original Greek compositions, uh, including additions to the book of Esther and Daniel. Uh, uh, it seems to me incontrovertible, which, which is a pretty strong word, that uh, the Septuagint, the translation began sometime uh, in the first quarter of the third century BCE. So somewhere around 275 BCE in Alexandria, Egypt, to which huge numbers of Jews had moved either because they wanted to or they were coerced to. And that one of the factors of concern was that given the overwhelming um, and frankly impressive um, world that Hellenism had developed, which uses Greek as its um, its, uh, language, a medium of expression, uh, Jews would soon lose facility to read or even to understand Hebrew. And we don't want them to lose their, their, their... the biblical text, so we'll translate it into, into Greek. And that's certainly one factor. The reason I hesitated, if I, if I did, is that I, uh, there is a biblical passage in, uh, it's uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, where Ezra, who is the scribe, has come back from uh, Babylonia, and he's reading to the people some form of the Torah, 
He's reading it in Hebrew, and the, the text in biblical Hebrew is not unambiguous. It often is not, but it appears as if, as he reads it in Hebrew, there are interpreters uh, translating it into Aramaic. Uh, some of the of the early rabbis, Talmudic rabbis, uh, actually uh, felt that that was the origin of the Targums, but they also felt that uh, Ezra was in a synagogue. So it means it's an anachronistic reading of it. Um, but um, it, for all intent and purposes, the the oldest translation, which it's important to remember, was written by Jews for Jews um, several centuries before the uh, beginning of Christianity uh, was the Septuagint. Right. And what does the name Septuagint mean? It means 70. Um, it's, it's, so, it's sort of funny because almost no question, I'm sure um, you will appreciate, has a simple answer. So when you look at the... <laughs> when you, if, you, if it did, why would they need us? Um, if, if we look at the earliest account of the origins of the Greek translation, in this case of the Torah, which purports to be an eyewitness account, but which is at least 100 years later than, um, than the Septuagint would have been done. That's, this is called the letter of Aristeus. Um, it, they, the author speaks of there being six translators from each of the 12 tribes, and that's 72. <laughs> and um, at, it, no one is, if, for, for my mind, no one is quite sure um, why it the number was kind of rounded off to 70, except that 70 as a number is found in some cases in biblical text and in, in related texts. The, the number of nations in the world is 70. So it's that 70, which is also abbreviated LXX, um, is, the, is the general term for the Greek translation. Really, it's the general term for the Greek Bible uh, to the extent that it has the translation of the Hebrew Bible, the translation of other Semitic texts, and then some Greek um, compositions. Right, right. <coughs> and um, what techniques were used in the, tra- in the Septuagint translation? Uh, you name it, they did it. Oh, I get it. There are some... Okay, so first of all, the, the Septuagint that we have... And I've been, I was involved in a, an English translation, uh, NETS, N-E-T-S, um, through the International Organization for Septuagint Cognate Studies. And so there's, there's a Septuagint we translated, but it's an artificial construct uh, because it, it involves um, the, oldest, the oldest evidence for a Septuagint uh, is well into the fourth century of the Common Era, when several... Uh, huge manuscripts that we call codices, which included then old, what we call what they call Old Testament, New Testament, uh, and th- that's when those texts, those were the earliest collection of texts to be essentially the Septuagint um, developed, and um, and even those uh, three great we call them codices or codexes, even they differ on precisely. What's you know what's what's in the Septuagint? 
Right. But, but, um, but, but you mentioned that there's some distinct techniques of yes, translation no. yes, in okay. the text. So, oh, yes. Given, <laughs> I got halfway, but I'm all the way. Thank you. Um, uh, given that, so, so the Septuagint, as we call it, of some books is very, very literal. Uh, it's the oldest form we have of it. Uh, the, the Book of Lamentations, for example, is, it would say, painfully literal, if you will, almost impossible to comprehend uh, without having uh, knowledge of the Hebrew. At the other end, there are translations of the book, of translations of some books like Proverbs, where um, it's agreed upon by all experts. The, the translators um, presumably had in front of them a Hebrew similar to our Hebrew text of Proverbs, but then when they translated it, <clears throat> when they reflected it, when they transmitted it into Greek, they put in all sorts of aphorisms and sayings and uh, concerns that represented their time period. And yet, I mean, we say that's a Bible translation. Uh, the translation of the Torah, <coughs> which uh, is, par is uh, paradigmatic, for the Septuagint as a, as a whole, is what I would call responsibly literal. Um, the, the, and, you know, the text is read, and then it's uh, more or less on a word-for-word -word basis um, put into Greek. Um, there's something, something about that that should be mentioned, is that um, because Greek, like English, is an Indo-European language and Hebrew is, is a Semitic language, uh, the translators had over and over again, they needed to decide, okay, uh, do, do I want to reflect something of the Semitic background? And being what I would call responsibly literal, they did on occasion do that. And because uh, I teach a, uh, an advanced, I'm very fortunate to be able to teach an advanced Greek class, fortunate one, because I love Greek, and two, because uh, even in spite of uh, enrollment concerns, I can teach a class with only two students in it. <laughs> itself is a blessing. And we'll, we'll read New Testament Greek, and then we'll read Septuagint Greek, and the students don't have a background in Hebrew. And so I'm going with them all the time saying, you see, the, you, we see this, this is not a really a Greek expression. In Hebrew, there's, uh, for example, the infinitive absolute, where the, the root of the, the verbal root is repeated twice, uh, or it's repeated, it's there and it's, it's, it's given in another form. And some translators, um, well, like in English, most translators would say if, if there was, uh, he, was he was angry, angry, they might say he was very wrathful or something, it was very upset. Um, and the, the Greek translators, some of the translators just ignored it, but then some of them... Uh, came up with some Greek construction. It's, it's Greek. I mean, you can say, well, that's a Greek participle followed by a conjugated form of the verb, but it's, it's not native Greek. Right. Um, so everywhere from uh, painfully literal to, I think, somewhat serendipitously um, free, uh, there's that, 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 that wide range. Right. Wow. Wow. Um, so, uh, 
just a little bit more about the Septuagint. There's so much material. I have to say, your book is is really just a, a treasure. There's so much Thank information you. about so many different translations. We're not going to be able to, <laughs> to to get to all of them. But um, um, I am curious, uh, who was the Septuagint? Who was the the, the intended audience for the Septuagint? Uh, for that translation, and how was the Septuagint received at the time? Oh, oh, great questions! And again, no easy answers. Um, <laughs> according to, according to this letter of Aristeus, which I mentioned, which purports to be an eyewitness account, and even if it's hundred years later, it's a lot earlier than any other narrative we have about Septuagint origins. According to that document, the 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 reason why, uh, the, in this case, the Torah was translated was because the king of the time, Ptolemy II, <coughs> was told by his librarian, because they were involved in building the great library of Alexandria, he said, we don't have a, a copy in Greek of the Jewish law. No library could be complete without it. Let's, let's get it done. And according to this account, uh, Ptolemy II sent a message and a great deal of wealth and, um, uh, I don't know, sort of temptation, if you will, to the high priest in Jerusalem, who then sent six translators from each of the 12 tribes. And uh, the translators were then uh, sequestered in one way or another and produced their translation, and uh, they were royally treated. Uh, And then the translation presumably made its way into the library. There's no evidence, in fact, <clears throat> that that's the case. I mean, but on the other hand, it's not in some ways improbable. On the other hand, it seems more than likely, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, more than likely that the Jewish community, as I mentioned before, its leadership began to realize that um, the, the urge to learn Greek was really was irresistible. And uh, yes, we can fight it and we can try to keep everybody reading Hebrew, but we need to have it so that people will be able to understand the text. And then there's a debate over whether that was more of an educational um, enterprise, uh, more of a liturgical enterprise, <coughs> um, And but its main audience would then have been Jews. Um if we wanted to go on on this, yes, because uh, right, we, there, we won't though. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. But but this does highlight um, the point that you made earlier on, which I think it does. Uh, you know, a beer um, 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 stressing that these translations that you're that we're talking about that you that you just explore in your book are not just translations of the Jewish Bible, but they're really translations intended uh, primarily, if not, uh, you know, exclusively for a Jewish audience. Um, and I think it's interesting, even with, with uh, the Septuagint, to think about the, the, the idea that this was a Greek translation, but it was intended for Jews who knew Greek or who wanted to know Greek rather than for non-Jewish Greek speakers or readers who were trying to explore the Hebrew Bible. Um, so that it kind of puts it in a, in a, in a different uh, perspective. But all right. 99% of the people would agree with 99% of what we just said. 
But I think not- that's about as good as you can get on any day. Uh, 99% agree with 99% of it. That, that sounds pretty good to me. Um, so, okay. Um, um, uh, moving along here a bit. Um, when do the Targums, the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible get written? Uh, the, okay. So the, uh, again, it's not a trick question, but, um, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Um, translation of the Bible into Aramaic and, uh, by interpreter, <clears throat> I'm com- totally comfortable with that. It happened at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which would be fifth century, um, <clears throat> that the Bible was translated into Aramaic, uh, in, in written form. Uh, around the first century, be later than Septuagint, but still <clears throat> pretty early is known because we have Greek text of 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 the book, uh, Greek translations of the book of Job, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the people who, <clears throat> sorry, the, the the people who I listen to um, would um, locate the origins of the Targums in the beginning as early as the first and running through primarily the sixth century of the common era and connect them with a, it's, it's a rabbinic sponsored enterprise. Uh, and therefore, um, and then the, 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 the Targums have, you know, their own distinctive features. And I think it's worth it <coughs> very briefly to mention two of them, because I continue to find, to find it fascinating. One of them is that um, the the translators of the Targums, whenever they saw in the Hebrew, and their Hebrew, as far as we can tell, is very similar to the Hebrew we continue to use today. Whenever they saw a reference to God, as, as an anthropopathism of God, God got angry, God's wrath, or um, an anthropomorphism, God lifted his hand, um, they translated it out of the text. Now, how will we understand that? That's part of the biblical text. Uh, they never allowed such language into their translation. And interestingly enough, Sadra Gaon, eight centuries later into Arabic, he took a different approach, but had the same point in mind. Uh, I judgmental, I mean, and as I'll try not to be non, I try to be non-judgmental, but I believe that uh, in instances like this, the, the biblical text should be translated as closely as possible to the Hebrew. Uh, and then we start dealing with the question, oh, did God uh, really have a hand? Did, did God really get angry? Um, but we, those questions aren't even raised in a translation that papers them over. And the second point, very briefly, <coughs> what the Targums are probably most famous for, is that you'll be reading uh, a, a fairly straightforward translation of a biblical passage, and it'll be... <coughs> So you'll be followed by this passage. You don't know where it came from. It's midrash. It, it, it's it doesn't come. Uh, nobody would. Nobody really thinks it came from a from a written text. It it, it was midrash. It's exegesis. And, yes, and and it was right there in the text. And so, uh, what again? What I think is interesting is that. Thank you. Uh, is that both? is that both of these approaches, a fairly literal approach and then a, a midrashic uh, amplification approach are in the same text. <clears throat> somebody might have argued, I mean, somebody surely did argue at some point, well, that was that was the original translation, then somebody went back, but that's not what people understand today. 
So this is this is amazing, and it's also worth mentioning um, that the Targums, uh, if you if you're studying in a traditional Jewish educational context, you will certainly study Targums. Doesn't mean you'll become expert in them, but it's something you will study because the Targums became part of a, a, a synagogue uh, ritual, uh, so that. Uh, a, we're told this in the rabbinic material, and that's a little bit of evidence for it outside there. A person would read from the Hebrew scroll or chant from the Hebrew scroll, just as we do today, uh, a, a verse from the Hebrew Bible, from, from the Torah, and then someone would say an Aramaic translation of it. That was important that the person who was speaking the Aramaic didn't read it as if it were a an equally sacred text, but it was important that that took place. Some people think the same thing happened in Greek-speaking synagogues. But unlike the Targum, the Septuagint uh, has not been part of <coughs> has not been part of um, traditional Jewish education. Uh, and I I consider that a, a loss, and I've, something <laughs> I've tried to something I've tried to remedy. Alas, a lot of things I've tried to remedy. So at least you know we say okay, uh, you know. If to the extent that people would have thought of the Septuagint in the, in the general world, it would be a Greek translation of the Bible that Christians used, because ultimately it became Greek. It became the translation of the Bible that uh, that Christians used. Um, but its its origins are Jewish, and it 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 encapsulates centuries of Jewish interpretation, and consequently, even though I, I would. I've actually been able to teach uh, within the, our Jewish community in Omaha you know, some, some, a, a class or two on the Septuagint. Um, right. So we've got the Septuagint and the Targums. We only have 2,230 more translations to do. <laughs> Give or take. I think we're doing great. Uh, I, I will just say, I really, that's uh, you, um, one thing that, that you just mentioned that kind of jumps out at me is how, as you said, that the Targum seems to have the Aramaic translation of the Bible um, seems to have been uh, incorporated or kind of embraced, um, at least by by some uh, Jewish um, communities, even to, to today, that it's part of the um, synagogue, you know, practice to, to read or at least, um, you know, check up on the Targum, whereas the Greek is sort of completely absent. And I was rem- I reminded when I was in college, I became friends with... Um, uh, a young guy who had gone to who's Catholic and went to a you know Catholic high school and he had learned Latin and then at one point when I was one day when I was talking to him he said oh well you know as, as someone who went to yeshivas to re- religious Jewish schools I'm sure you learned Latin too you know and I. <laughs> And I had the same response that you did. I started laughing. I said, oh, God, they didn't, you know, that, that was not something that was part of the curriculum. Um, because, of course, he he assumed, you know, that, that Latin has the same uh, kind of sacred status within the Jewish community that it does within the Christian community, which obviously it doesn't. Although, allow but, me to add, oh, excuse me, allow, I'm sorry. Uh, I no, no, wait, 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 one second, oh. one second. I, I just want to say one thing. But, but, but my response now... To, to his comment is, no, 
they didn't teach me Latin, and, and that made sense, so to speak, but they could have taught me Greek because then I could have learned the Septuagint, which is, a, as you said, a profoundly Jewish text. And so it would have actually made a lot of sense for them to teach me Greek and allow us to be able to experience the, the, the glory of the Septuagint firsthand. That was my, that was uh, my reflection. I, I thought, all I was going to say was that um, when, when Jerome was, was given his, um, the, the task by the then reigning Pope uh, to produce a Latin translation, there had been a number of other Latin translations. He, he, it was, his was meant and in fact did uh, replace all of them. All of those previous Latin translations of the quote-unquote Old Testament had been made from the Greek. And Jerome was unique in his own time period because not only did he learn Hebrew, uh, he spent many years in, in the area of Caesarea. He consulted rabbis and uh, became immersed in the Jewish tradition, which, by the way, some of his... Um, equally well-known, if not better-known contemporaries such as Augustine, heaped condemnation on him because that was just impossible. But nonetheless, uh, Jerome's translation uh, uh, is particularly influenced by one uh, recension or, or one transmission of, 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 the, um, of, of Jewish tradition that um, after, look, after Jerome's time, um his um dependence on the Hebrew Bible for the quote unquote Old Testament so the Septuagint that pretty much got lost. And it was only after this is pretty amazing. It's only after World War II that and as in the last five decades that Catholics have been Catholics have been able to read the Bible in other than the Vulgate or translation of the Vulgate. And there were essentially no Catholic biblical scholars except studying the Vulgate until after World War II. It's, 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 it's pretty well, amazing. Right. Wow. Wow. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, and as you mentioned, there, there's many uh, uh, generations of translations and translators that you explore in your book. And we're, we just don't have uh, enough time to go through all of them. But I am wondering, are there commonalities uniting almost all Jewish translators and translations uh, that you explore? Uh, yes. Um, and when I'm, when I'm think about it, it's not that there's anything that is uniquely that only Jewish translators do, but it's in fact what more so what Jewish translators have done. Uh, so for example, um, we, we know, of course, that the, um, the Hebrew text uh, in biblical times, actually up through late medieval times, was written only with consonants. And then ultimately vowels were put in to get what we call the Masoretic text and the Bible we use today. Um, all the translators who followed that, which would be everyone except the Hebrew uh, translator, uh, the, the, the translators into Greek and the translators into Aramaic, made use of that Masoretic text. And uh, in general, uh, they, were, they have been unwilling to make any changes from that text. Uh, it, it, it becomes, in, in, more, in some of the more recent Jewish translations, including the JPS Tanakh that most of us use now, 
uh, in the in the in the prophets and in the writing section uh, m- more um, is a, a bit more prone to making changes in in the text itself. But you making use of and being familiar with and being appreciative of the the, the entire Masoretic tradition. Um, is a characteristic of Jewish Bible translations. Um, the, the the one that I find, or the characteristic that I find, uh, I think most interesting because they're all interesting, is the degree to which commentary is part and parcel of Jewish Bible translation. Uh, in fact, uh, many translations, uh, the the translated text itself is subsidiary, as it were. You need that translation for the commentary, but the commentary is where the action is. Uh, so, uh, for example, with Sajjah Gaon, who produced this Arabic translation, he, 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 he may have produced one or two translations, uh, but each one of them was accompanied by a commentary. And we have only snippets of the, of the commentary remaining but it was clear that, I mean, the translation itself has interpretive elements in it, but then it's expanded upon in, in the commentaries. And when Moses Mendelssohn, at the uh, latter part of the 18th century, produced what was in fact the first translation to German, as opposed to Yiddish, for, um, for German-speaking Jews, which, he call, which we call the Beor, the Beor that there's also um, this text and then there's commentary, and there's commentary, and there's commentary, and there's commentary, and there's commentary, there's commentary top of commentary. And uh, the late 19th century uh, neo-Orthodox German translator, Samson Raphael Hirsch, uh, whose work is, 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 in fact, the only German Jew, uh, translation of the Bible for Jews that's been translated so it's in English and it's still apparently quite influential. Uh, his, his commentary is really where the action is. Uh, interestingly enough, so this this commentary, it's translation with commentary, or almost commentary with translation. It's interesting that uh, two individual efforts uh, of the 20th and indeed the 21st century, the one by Robert Alter, um, who taught for years at Berkeley, and the one by Richard Freeman, uh, who taught in San Diego and now teaches at the University of Georgia, both of their in the title of their books, it's Bible translation with commentary, and um, so it's it's uh, it's not always the case, but it's very characteristic. Uh, it's almost like a dissertation: three lines of text, forty-eight lines of commentary, <laughs> and and we can actually uh, follow again. Uh, I'm not getting off the subject because the subject is so vast. But nonetheless, in 19th century, it's particularly interesting in 19th century uh, Germany, uh, where reform began, that you will see uh, uh, translators, sometimes literal, sometimes uh, or more functional, sometimes more formal, who will include uh, Christian commentary in the, in the, that, that itself was they're making a statement about it. And then they would accept the documentary hypothesis, or, or, um, which, of course, the more traditional Jews would not have. Um, so in, in, in a sense, um, even though it's not formally the case, Jewish Bible translations are in conversation 
with and translate is on conversation uh, with each other. And, and one last point uh, is that uh, ideally a a translation of the Hebrew Bible includes the Hebrew text, either on the facing uh, facing page or on a column. Uh, JPS, Jewish Publication Society, produced its first English language translation, the New English translation in 1965, but it wasn't until 1999 that they produced a text with Hebrew on one side and English on the other. But even when that's not the case, um, Typically, in the on the title page on the cover, uh, there'll be Hebrew. Uh, the the parsha the parashot will be marked. There'll there'll be some recognition that this is as important as translations are. This is not the original. This is pointing to the original, right. and uh, that's to me is distinctively Jewish. Right, right. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, the last question, because we, we do have to let you go. Um, could you tell us about a new project that you're working on now? Yes. Uh, I've, I've been asked uh, by Oxford University Press to uh, make a proposal and then presumably write a book. They have, Oxford has a, a series of series, and there's one called The Cabinet of Curiosities. It's, it's, it's a miscellany. Uh, and they've done a uh, um, a, um, a cabinet of Byzantine um, curiosities, a cabinet of Roman curiosities, Greek curiosities. Now they want to do a um, a cabinet of Bible curiosities. It's 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 sort of um, uh, wow. This is sort of odd, and who would have thought that? Um, and uh, this is, would be for both biblical texts, but it appeals to me because I've always been interested oh, for a long time in the Bible and public culture. And what's interesting here, I mean, like if, if, if the person who wrote the Byzantine book, which I have a copy of it, it looks really good. If, if he uh, criticizes one of the, one of the um, uh, Byzantine rulers, I don't think people will get all that except, uh, if he makes fun of them, I don't think people will get all that ups, upset. Uh, I, People do take the, the the Bible seriously, even though the Bible's got a lot of humor in it. And so I need to be sensitive of that. At the same time, I need to be critical. So that's the um, that's the biggest project I think that I'm going to work on next. That, that sounds really exciting. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.